Hello everybody and welcome to episode 6 of season 2 of Sequelizers, the show all about fixing bad sequels to good movies. If there's a good movie that was followed by a terrible sequel, you better believe we're going to try and fix it. I'm your host, Jack Chambers, and joining me are the two teams of titular Sequelizers. Coming first to the Ashen's Plowman experience, Mr. Stuart Ashen. Hello. And Alec Plowman. Yo. Over to the team formerly known as Street Sharks and having the cryptic crossword puzzle pun on Street Sharks for every episode. I mean, I don't know, I don't, or, I don't know what you're talking about. Or maybe they don't, who no, knows? It's just, no. just, just, just very a, just clever team names, I think, is what I we're being, so. becoming That's, renowned That must for. be it. Yep. Aqua-based team names. Speaking of aqua-based names, Matthew Stogden. Ahoy. And Tom Martin. Hello there. So, gentlemen, we're diving back far, far into the past. Back, way, way back to the 1950s, the furthest we've dove so far in this sequelizing podcast of ours. We're going back to the sequel to The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Revenge, a.k.a. sort of maybe the return of (laughs) The Creature. Because much like Star Wars, it had both names at one point. Did it really? Yes, it did. That's an interesting piece of trivia there, Mr. Mr. Chambers. I'm full of trivia for this movie. Oh, I, know. I mentioned some trivia at the end of the last episode, and it is the only 3D sequel of the golden age of 3D to a 3D movie of the same era, mm. which is a weird thing. And uh, yeah, it's a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly yep, is, just, Jack. Just, it I mean, certainly is. Don't, yeah, don't, don't, be, don't beat around the bush, Jack. Go straight. Go, go straight. I shall to not. It. So you like this one then? Oh yeah, it's my favourite so far. <laughs> I mean, it's not as but like I would rather watch this than mm, Exorcist Two. Mulan. Two? I'd certainly yeah. rather watch this than bloody Mulan. Oh, Mulan Two. <laughs> Mulan. Return of Jafar was pretty bad as well. So to give it some context, this came out a year after the original, and hardly anybody from the original. Actually returns. It's a totally, mostly, totally it's just new cast. Boat captain, if I remember. Pretty it? much, yeah. yeah. And only, only briefly as well. And is the starring debut of one Mr. Clint Eastwood. Oh, oh my yes. God! We're going to talk about that in a minute because, yeah, that's a thing. Because of marketing reasons. Because <laughs> <laughs> of marketing, exactly. It, it's like. I don't know, retrospectively, starring role of Clint Eastwood, who is an assistant junior scientist for all of 12 seconds. <laughs> but what a 12 seconds they oh, were. He thought a cat had eaten a rat, but it hadn't. It was in his pocket. Oh, classic Clint Eastwood. Typecast for the rest of his life as the man who is confused about the location of rats. Oh, so well, are you feeling lucky, punk? Did I lose one rat or did I lose three? It's kind of like Schrodinger's rat then in that regard. In a way, yeah, yeah. So to give some context around this, like I said, it came out a year after the original and the original was quite late to the universal monster kind of 40s, 50s, even 30s and 20s horror genre. We'd already had a bunch of Dracula stuff, uh, Bela Lugosi's Dracula and all that sort of stuff happening before and... It was critically acclaimed at the time, but it didn't set the world on fire and has since become more of a cult classic. And A lot of that because a lot of the Universal Monster movies got shown on television all the time yes. in the yeah. 70s. Which... They, were, they were non-stop repeat for the next 30 years, yeah. basically. And weirdly enough, Gilman, as I discovered, I had no idea that was actually the, name, the yeah. creature's yep. name. Yeah. He appears in the least Universal films going forward. He has appeared the least compared to Dracula... Frankenstein's to monster, fair, Wolfman, etc., etc. Comer in terms of um, arrival being twenty or thirty years after the Dracula film. Yeah, exactly. 
I mean, I, I'm quite looking forward to the inevitable modern uh, Dark Universe reboot with Tom Hardy as the Gill Man. Oh, we, we, like. we had it. It was called Monster Squad in 1987. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 But we're fresh for a reboot. Uh, That's his most Tom recent Cruise <laughs> rocking up. And then, as you say, Tom Hardy says, Hello. Hello. <laughs> it turns Tom out Hardy as Kim Jong Il. <laughs> <laughs> well, it turns out he's a really. It turns out he's a really sexy, misunderstood girl man. You, you were merely raised in the lagoon. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was critically acclaimed, but didn't set the world on fire. And it's it's kind of revealed now. He's become an icon. The Gill Man. I can't get over that name. Has become an iconic character since then, and is kind of entered into the Hall of Fame of the Universal Monsters and things like that. But this movie and the third one, which is Ooh, Creature Walks yes. on Land or some no, terrible the Creature fucking... Walks Among Us. Walks Among Us, that's yeah. it, yeah. Slightly less <laughs> shit title. I was kind of hoping slightly. when I read the title that it would be quite a gritty modern reboot, a bit a la Battlestar Galactica than the 2004 one where every, the creatures could Everyone's take a human form. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not that far it's off, right. actually. It does wear a suit yeah. for most yeah. of it. Yeah. He's accidentally evolving in the third one. Yeah. And, Accident- oh yeah, no! Accident- <laughs> well, yeah, like he—he's actively resisting it, but the humans are trying to like work out. Oh, is he part human? Is he part this? Yeah. And it's very weird. It just he wakes up in the morning, goes, "Where the fuck are my gills?" Yeah. <laughs> yes, literally. Yeah, that's not. And he, get, he gets off, a tracheostomy yeah. in like the first five minutes because yeah. he's suffering because he's evolving without it's, his gills. It's kind of what he evolves the... in front of your eyes for no fucking this movie reason. This sounds amazing. Why have I never seen? <laughs> if this isn't your pitch, I don't know <laughs> what is. If you want to see a half decent version of that, it's called Day of the Dead with Zombie yeah. Bob. Yeah, I'd like uh... to quite. I quite like to think that he just wakes up and they call him like Hans Gillman. Yeah. Well, yeah. he doesn't got any gills. He's just, he's just man. Well, no, Hans Gilman. Hans, Hans man, man. Hans, Hans, Hans man. <laughs> now, the third is such a cheap one as well. It's because they didn't have the whole suit anymore or couldn't afford it. So nothing really happens underwater. He's just walking on the land. There's just mask, gloves, and shoes, and that's please, your lot. I was going to you know? say, please tell me that no, I thought we were going to say nothing happens below his waist. And he just, like, <laughs> yeah. just had a pair of jeans on it. Like, You're suit. not far off, Tom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, it's almost he's, like- he's basically wearing flippers, as you said, Stuart, like a mask and, gl- and gloves, and that's yeah. it. And he's in like a torn up suit half the time. And Amazing. do you know the worst thing? It's still better than the second one. Yeah, yeah. At least it's entertaining. Exactly. It's batshit it sounds mentalness way because more entertaining than one we yeah. saw. We mentioned the, underwater, the lack of underwater photography in the third one. That was kind of the groundbreaking thing about the first one. That's why it was so lauded because it's so beautifully shot, those scenes underwater. And I, I was looking at how they got the guys in the suit to... Because there's two people who play the game, one on land, one in water. And the guy literally has a hose like fed into the bottom of his suit, up the back of his leg, and round to the top of him. Which seems like a really backwards way of doing it, but a lot of the shots have his feet right on the edge of the screen, so yeah. you can kind of hide the, ho- the air hose a little bit better. It's a really clever way of doing it, and it, it, I think it works really, really well. Not so much in the second one, where he's just, you can tell he's a bloke in a suit, and he's just like kicking around and not doing much. But Bloke, but, bloke in a suit, clearly in a tank as well. Yes, yeah, really yeah. Every, everything is almost entirely shot in a tank in the second one, by the looks of it. And also, a lot of the time, the creature is out of the water, which makes it entirely unterrifying. Yes, <laughs> that, that, we'll, we'll get to that in yeah. a second. Yeah, it would absolutely. almost be like taking a shark... Oh, 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 fuck. Interesting. You both. (laughs) (laughs) It never ends. Before we get to the sequelizing, I'll give you guys a quick synopsis and, of course, let you guys guess the Rotten Tomatoes rating. So start brainstorming now Hmm. while I go through this synopsis. And 
Funnily enough, so little happens in this movie. I didn't need to go to IMDb. I went to the Wikipedia page, and the entire plot summary is what I'm about to read for you now. <laughs> it is two paragraphs, <laughs> and they're about 100 words apiece. So, having previously magically, miraculously survived being riddled with bullets at the end of the first one, which, as we said, is the same ending as this one, he just survives like every time. shot for Yeah, yeah. The Gill Man is captured and sent to Ocean Harbor Oceanarium in Florida, where he is studied by animal psychologist Professor Cleet Ferguson and ichthyology student Helen Dobson. Helen and Cleet quickly begin to fall in love, much to the chagrin of Joe Hayes, the Gilman's keeper. The Gilman takes an instant liking to Helen, which severely hampers Professor Ferguson's efforts to communicate with him. And ultimately, the Gilman escapes for seemingly no reason <laughs> from his tank, killing Joe in the process, and flees to open ocean. Unable to stop thinking about Helen, the Gilman soon begins to stalk her and Ferguson, ultimately abducting her from a seaside restaurant where the two are at a party. (laughs) 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 Cleet tries to give chase, but the Gilman escapes to the water with his captive. Cleet and police arrive just in time when the creature surfaces. Police shoot him to death as Cleet saves Helen. Before, Before we get into the proper plot, let's have a guess for... Rotten Tomatoes percentage and then average rating out of 10, please, gentlemen. Any ideas what it could possibly be? Hmm. I'm going to say mid-40s, like 46. 26 for me. I'm going to say 30. 22% on Rotten Tomatoes. Average of 3.2 out of 10. Wow. So that's well in sequelized territory. That's pretty low. That's maybe the... I think that's... I think it's the lowest one we've had. It's almost as low as Exorcist 2. Mulan is the lowest one. Mulan is 0%, so yeah. I'm sure if social media is anything to go by, there will be at least 20 fans and they'll be all fucking outraged. Oh, but I love Revenge of the Creature. That's the best way to scott the Oceanarium! <laughs> I worked in SeaWorld because of this movie. I was inspired. My entire career is based around this film. I had myself surgically altered to be a gill man. <laughs> there is that I've guy that looks film. like a cat with all the weird tattoos oh, in the Guinness yes. World Record. Is there a flaky gill man? Is there a gill man somewhere? I was, I, was, I was abducted from a restaurant by a gill man and this helped me deal with my trauma. I've seen women oh, and I'll get cool. lust after them as well. I'm just like him. <laughs> I was once captured and taken to SeaWorld against my will. And <laughs> this movie really spoke to me and my experiences, as it did my wife, Martha. <laughs> I say wife, I mean captive. <laughs> I say wife, I mean girl man. <laughs> <laughs> if we had subtitles for these episodes, my wife colon Gilman <laughs> would be. That is actually the name of our pitch. So yeah, we'll be fine. it's a it's a delicate uh, documentary style Jeremy Carlesque kind of examination oh, of marrying a Gilman. Colon Gilman is a very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> That's the yeah. XXX parody, I believe. Oh, God. Anyway, the reason it's so shit, as you may have guessed, is because nothing fucking happens. (laughs) And it's like 72 minutes long or something, 69 minutes long, something like that. And he's captured. He swims around for a bit. He just, arbitrarily in a fish tank. Just in a fish. He's literally in a fish tank. He arbitrarily breaks his chain at one point. Because, like I was saying before, when he's clearly a man in a suit is when he's like pinned down against the ground pulling against the train trying to break it against the like panel in the floor that he's chained to then like 10 minutes later he just swims and it breaks off his foot for no <laughs> fucking reason it could have been that he just weakened it by all that tugging but it's, who it's knows? the power of swimming don't defend this movie tom martin <laughs> how dare you sir? i think this comes at an interesting point in cinema history though when Sequels really are seen as nothing more than the law of diminishing returns. Yes, yeah. It is that idea of we'll give them the same thing, but ever so slightly different, but really the same thing. 
And I guess I can kind of understand that in an era where you couldn't watch it on video because sometimes the same thing again is is a bit more rewarding. You can't can't be watching the original Creature from the Black Lagoon, so here's it kind of again in the cinemas, but not really kind of thing. Unless you've got some sort of running matinee in some sort of local cinema Yeah, Yeah, well, I guess you did get a lot more of that. um, Yeah, because uh, again, because of lack of home video, home, home entertainment. But I guess you could get away with that a lot more to to an extent but i also think that this was just a time when i think really i've often thought this i think it's in it's only once you hit empire strikes back in the 80s that people really start to go hey a sequel could be more than just the you can tell a, a building I, I, narrative but then people have said but how that was the problem for a couple it's like but I, d- I don't know how and then suddenly it's like oh shit okay and uh, now we've gone full circle, and they're back to being crap. <laughs> well, I say back to being crap. Uh, Revenge of the Creature is one of those films that when kids say, I don't want to watch our black and white films, they're all boring. It's just people standing around talking and silly, jaunty music, and then it goes the end. That is literally what this film <laughs> yeah. is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm, I mentioned it in the previous episode. Like I'm woefully uneducated in black and white movies and going back to, like, I've never seen Casablanca and things like that. What? Exactly, yeah. And you need to get on that, Jay. Um, apparently, it's, uh, it's a please good tell film, me, Jack. Please tell me you've seen Citizen Kane. I've never seen Citizen oh, Kane. Oh, Are we going to have to do an episode that we're going to have an intervention? Movies, movies Jack hasn't watched. <laughs> I, would, uh, I work regularly with a man who hasn't seen Star Wars, so. Um, <laughs> I mean, what? Uh, why do you work Alec regularly? Because <laughs> it's the, you, you the only freak show members. I get to go into for free, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I hadn't seen The Creature from the Black Lagoon, the original one, or this one before we started discussing this, you can't this tell episode listeners but my eyebrows are raised <laughs> I, I, they heard i they assume heard. you enjoyed the original creature i did yes yeah. yeah very much so i was pleasantly surprised by that and then as stuart said this lived up to all the like millennial expectations like oh it's black and white oh it's really bad adr and it's boring and nothing happens I was like yeah that's this film the adr is fucking terrible <laughs> and like no matter how far they are away from the creature his scream roar whatever the fuck that noise is uh, yes. is unbearably loud did you interestingly because it's something we haven't touched on yet from a technical perspective uh did you watch it in 3d jack or did you watch it in 2d how the fuck are we watching 3d because you can get versions which are yeah, I've, got, I've, I've got the 3d nothing to play on i didn't know i didn't know that was a thing and i don't have anything to watch 3d on because so you can no, get it you can get it on dvd with like the anag- like in the original because obviously it's anaglyphic kind of 3d yeah. interestingly like and, the original version wasn't anaglyphic there's an anaglyphic version, but the original one was the same as we get now with the yeah, uh, polarized lenses, polarized lenses. lenses. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. which amazed me because I thought the polarized lenses were a relatively new invention. But no, it predates the anaglyph. We've you and I have seen an anaglyphic print, haven't we? We've John? seen. I was just about to say I have very the, one of my fondest memories of this film is on several occasions that our film, the original, I assume the original. Yeah. Yes, the original creature from the Black Lagoon has been screened several times on our film course at UEA mm, um, right, at, right. at Cinema City here in Norwich, uh, and we've seen it's a very good anaglyphic print. Yeah, we've seen that uh, two or three times. Yeah, yeah. and it's really, really, yeah. it, it stands up really well. Because we used to we used to keep sneaking into the screenings afterwards. It was like a welcome to welcome yes. to UEA first year screening, and we kept asking just, if we could go <laughs> back. <laughs> <and> we, <laughs> Really good. <laughs> Tells you everything you need to know about us, but um, but you're no. criminals. No, no. <laughs> you're the reason the cinema industry is destroyed. Um, but no, it's 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 really good, and it's bre- it, it kind of comes. It's really odd because it's black and white, but obviously with the blue and the red kind of combined, it kind of comes out brown. So it's quite sepia. interesting. It's right. quite a sepia right. kind of tinted. Uh, Which in some respects, kind of adds to the yeah. murky. Yeah, that, that, I, that sounds it. like yeah. it would work. And the yeah. 3D is quite the 3D is quite good. Um, I mean, I, I'm a huge like I 
despise 3D to be honest with you I think it's a really like especially in the modern it's a super gimmick fuck you James Cameron and Avatar yeah it's Mm. a terrible gimmick um, that has been just overused and and is dying thankfully again but um, but yeah it's an interesting kind of uh, kind of thing obviously something that we will have to deal with in the uh, in our pictures definitely it's 3D before the uh, listeners pick me up on it I would like to point out that I think the first uh Creature from the Black Lagoon is only an anaglyph print, and it was Revenge of the Creature or Return of the Creature that weirdly had the polarised one first. Yeah. What's more wrong with this, and as Alec kind of hinted at it, is that Gilman spends, like, when he's not awkwardly struggling against a single chain, if, despite his superhuman strength. In, in an incredibly shallow in incredibly, It's literally, like, ten feet deep. He jumps out of it at one point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just for no reason. They didn't think of that. That it's shallow enough that an average man could climb out of it. Exactly. Average alone a gill man. (laughs) And the rest of the time, like 60% of his screen time is him awkwardly ambling around on land. As great as the suit is, it doesn't look that good out of water. It looks terrible. He can't help but like do the Mm. classic. Waddle. He kind of looks like the Gorn from Star Trek in this like classic <laughs> yeah. arms out at right angles waddle thing. Yeah, it's, it's the give me a hug. It's the give yeah. me a hug thing. Mm. And whenever he attacks anybody, he just kind of hugs them and then they die for no reason. Yeah, he, he doesn't smells. really break necks. He doesn't claw people. He doesn't punch them. He just kind of hugs them. And they're like, oh, there's two bodies washed up. You're like, wait, what? How? <laughs> How? What? And, it- and then there's that one time he throws a guy into a tree and it's the best <laughs> because he throws him and he's clearly on a wire for the last like five seconds of the throw he throws him about an inch in front of his face and the rest is just him floating on a wire towards this tree and it is an epic epic throw I'd say if anyone hasn't seen these films and wants to see these films but doesn't have the time to see these films they're pretty short to be fair they are very short they're both under an hour hour and a half long they're on YouTube I think aren't they they are original versions are now public domain there's also a gif which is, <laughs> oh god! Yeah, are you yeah. D- distilling this for the millennial yeah, 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 listeners? Yeah, yeah. Because the gif is one of my favourite gifs of all time, next to the "Eat it, bitch, eat your broccoli." Um, Godzilla vs oh, King Kong yeah. gif that I yeah. continually use. But no, it's the best gif because it's like "fuck this, fuck that, yeah. fuck this thing, fuck yeah. that cat, yeah. fuck that also, fuck that a little bit." And it's just basically all the Gilman's yeah. and his hands mauling at things, and it's longer than it should be, and I love it. <laughs> I mean, maybe it turns out that it's just a misunderstood. The film is really just a misunderstood tale of James Gilman, who's just. just just wants to hug people. He's just like, <laughs> just, I, yeah, he just wants to hug people. He, he wants, wants to hug. Fuck looks people. more like an Ian to me. Yeah. I don't know. James Gilman, disgruntled it, sea man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Just, I just want to hug people. It is. It is quite interesting about the fact that uh, James Gilman, disgruntled sea man, is. Um, <laughs> As he was now, we know. That better be the title of your pitch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and our team. We've got my wife, Gilman. This <laughs> <laughs> is James Gilman. Misunderstood Seaman. <laughs> is the wife and James the same one? Who knows? Um, oh my no, God. I was going to say, of the Universal Monsters, they all have kind of the same uh, feel, which is, ah, uh, scary-ass monster. Maybe a little bit misunderstood, but really fucking horny either way. <laughs> Almost <laughs> always the same. Yeah, he's driven by his lust for Helen. <laughs> just yeah. completely yeah. arbitrarily. Yeah. I just, um, I just in like, the first one, is. Uh, Oh, definitely. Yeah. Lust for Kate. I just, yeah. I just like Chooks. Yeah, but I was going to say, he is... Chicks dig gills, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's chicks dig gills, man. Chicks dig gill, man. Oh. <laughs> Thank you for listening, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> we have officially week. jumped the gill, man. <laughs> oh, oh God. God. If that's your team name, I'm going <laughs> to fucking murder you. What is your team name? <laughs> there was a shared wink there. Oh, we'll, <laughs> see, we'll see what our team is later. No, I was going to say, of, of the ones, he's the most animalistic. 
because I mean, even like Wolfman and things, but obviously when he's Talbot most of the time, all the uh, the different various staple creatures in the in the Universal Monster series, they all have a, a sort of sentience to them. And, and a purpose. Yeah, Gilman yeah. is literally, I mean, less so in the first one, but in this one specifically, he literally is just a walking boner um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who doesn't want to be chained down. So hold on a minute. Your boner looks like a, a big green scaly man. I Jesus can, I can attest. The key word is big. I can, <laughs> I can attest that it has kills. <laughs> <laughs> the key word is discretion, Alex. Shut <laughs> up. Oh, dear. Um, anyway. We should also uh, mention, so Clint Eastwood is in this movie. It's one of his oh, earliest roles, and he's in it for all of about two minutes. It is um, his first. Is it his first film? Role? Yeah, because his first, first film role. role. I, I seem to remember we done were TV stuff before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It was one of the one of the producers kind of gave him almost like a favor, wasn't it? He gave him his first role in this. But, um, exactly right. Yeah. Amazingly, the DVD version that Stuart owns is part of the Clint Eastwood collection. Sorry, <clears throat> the Clint Eastwood classic collection. Oh. <laughs> Don't forget it the is classic. A fa- it is a famous Clint Eastwood classic. He's, yeah. He's in it for 20 seconds. He's shit, and so's the film. He loses Enjoy. a rat. But, but it takes up about, the bit that says Clint Eastwood takes up a good third of the box. <laughs> does it have a photo of Clint Eastwood as like the biggest? It doesn't yeah. have a picture of Clint Eastwood, it just has a picture of Gilman. <laughs> you can, it leads you, it leads you to assume Clint. that Clint Eastwood is in the scene. I mean, that, that's a hell of a starring role. He's secretly Gilman. Oh, I, I do like the idea that uh, the, the eventual day when um, Eastwood dies and we have that sort of Oscar memoriam thing and they've got his key roles of Joseph. <laughs> Wales and other bits and pieces and there's some, what the fuck is this rat business this is him putting his hand in a pocket in slow motion with the Ken Burns just yeah. to take out a rat and then go ah. <laughs> not a dry eye his most famous house. role junior scientist number two like, oh my god it's amazing technically he is a man with no name in that I guess <clears throat> he is yeah. indeed even though in the movies it's where the same he, character all along. Even though in the movie, all the movies where he plays the man with no name, he has a name. Yeah, <laughs> every one of them. <laughs> That's a really <laughs> good point. Ridiculous. So this is the real man with no name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he yeah. actually yeah. has no name yeah. in this one. So I have a question about uh, the first film, Creature from the Black Lagoon, right? You know there's the extraneous professor character on the boat who smokes a pipe and that's like all he does. <laughs> yes. And yeah. he doesn't do anything Classic else. Classic 50s, smoke the pipe uh, for no reason. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, why is he in the script? No idea. But he gets mauled near the end and survives, apparently. But he ends up with like really crazy um, bandages all over his face and doesn't speak even when he needs to later. Yeah. Did they lose the actor <laughs> during the <laughs> filming? <laughs> that's my theory on that. It, it makes sense. Question. Maybe he lost yeah. his voice. To be fair, it was also and the 50s. His face. And his face. <laughs> it, was, it was the 50s. He could literally died on the film and they went, eh, that's yes. true. Yeah. Get another guy in. Oh, he's no. Maybe he was a communist. Maybe <laughs> he was a <laughs> Again, it was the 50s. <laughs> it, it could have literally, but the only thing I can think from a production perspective is that potentially if he was someone of some fame at the time, they might have only had a few days with him so that they would have essentially done used that as like a body double day. I can't imagine he was that famous because he no. doesn't do anything. Because a lot of them also are, as we will come on to talk about when we come to our pitch, a lot of them were kind of like universal kind of uh, sort of set players that were kind of on contract to the oh, Universal yeah. Studio, so he probably wasn't someone. Uh, this is one of the things we, we addressed in the feedback episode when someone said, "Oh, be more, more constrained to what the budget was at the time." And think, "Well, it's a bit impractical." This is where they get the really dark era because, effectively speaking, th- before the Livia de Havilland uh, claw starts coming out, claw claws, sorry, comes yeah, out, all the they, vertical integrations yeah, with the studios. Yeah, where so you had was... to, that you're an MGM person, you're a Warner's person, you will not work for another studio. It's like fuck. So there are problematic sort of things there. Um, 
I think we got around it by saying "fuck you." Yeah, I think we we pretty much were like. <laughs> I think we're fine now. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll explain that when it comes yeah, to yeah. it. Yeah, well, yeah, Something I do love about both the films is when the monster is killed, it just goes the end, yeah. as if you yeah. characters were never important. Yeah, Gilman yeah. is gone. The film ends. You're here for Gillian. Gilly is gone. <laughs> so it's that time in the show where I need to get some team names from you folks. Alec and Stuart, I'll come to you guys first. This week we shall be mostly known as. Clint Eastwood's missing rat. <laughs> it's an important like plot point. I can best, understand. Best bit of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Probably is. Uh, that's yeah. I that's fair. I, that's I, can't, yeah. I can't find my rat. <laughs> it's in my pocket. Over to Matthew and Tom. How about your team name for this episode? Tom, would you like to illuminate my uh, colleagues? Uh, yeah, we... <laughs> I don't like the. Neither of you can say it without. Are, it's never our, a good sign. This this week we'll mostly be known as Finn Man, the other creature. <laughs> oh, if that's also the title God. of your film. <laughs> yep, might Wait be. Wait and see. Might be. Might be. <laughs> I, I can't even picture like a Finn Man in my head. What, what, it's Gil what would it look like? It would. I mean, kind you'd of... have to basically take a Gil Man, which is basically kind of something that doesn't have legs and put, which is aquatic and put legs on it. Um, so you'd take something that has a fin um, and put legs on it. Mm. And that's probably... Some sort of aquatic creature with a fin. Yeah, and put legs on, on it. Not, not a dolphin. Dolphins are dolphin No, 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 not Mixed quite. Not, not a whale either. Would be no, no, no I'm terrified of whales. Much. No, 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 no. So, uh, but yeah, I can't think of anything else. I wonder what fin creature it could be, you bellends. It's a porpoise. Named after the boat in the second film. I just love porpoise This is so worth it just to hear Alex's reaction every week. It's it's destroying him from inside out. Jack's mildly amused. Stuart yeah. sneers and Alec has a breakdown. <laughs> Alec just melts. I hate you guys so much. <laughs> well, we love you, so that's exactly why we do it. We Gilman you. <laughs> right, you aqua turds, let's carry on with this. Back over to Clint Eastwood and his missing rat. <laughs> the the uh, the unknown sequel to uh, May Marion and Her Merry Men. <laughs> Good lord. I would, oh. Hit me with your title, your themes, all that good stuff, please, sirs. Our film is called Return to the Black Lagoon, and it was made in the space year 1984. Whoa. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. All right, okay. Fuck you, the 50s. <laughs> <laughs> now Hello, we've got 70s rock stars. Yeah. Oh, no, what rock stars are we getting this time? Oh, gosh. I can guess one of them. I, yeah, well, this is my fear, is that it's going to reveal that actually... Slamu the street show. <laughs> So, Return to the Black Lagoon, 1984. Director, John Carpenter. Oh, he's back. No, I like that already. Interesting. And our cast are, Greta Buckley is played by Karen Allen, fresh out of uh, Raiders Raiders of the Lost Ark, and uh, filming with uh, John Carpenter Starman Mm -hmm. at a similar time. Ah, interesting. Professor Kieran Prenderville, played by Donald Pleasance. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Dr. Philip Medina, played by Rael Julia. Oh, shit, nice. Gavin Campbell, played by Alfred Molina. And The Gill Man, played by Balaji Badejo, who was the man in the suit in Alien. He's very tall, and I thought, we need some physical presence and A big-ass Gilman. Director of photography would have to be Dean Cundy. Yeah, no. Well, the, uh, amount many times with Cundy, the amount of times Cundy has come up this 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 in this. this yeah, season. he's been yeah. a popular trust. This is the Carpenter connection here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah. Cundy's no, been yeah. more than than Deacons, and I'm surprised by that. Mm. You got to bring Deacons out for you got to bring Deacons out for your A game. Oh, Tom's saving Deacons for some trump card. <laughs> this isn't feeling right. Get me the Deacons. <laughs> yeah. 
Music by John Carpenter, mm-hmm. of course. Yep, of course, yep. And Underwater Camera, stolen from Preta Frampton. <laughs> oh. You'll notice that we just have a good humoured chuckle and go, <laughs> no. It's called sportsmanship. Yeah, it is called sportsmanship. Do you want to discuss your themes, Mr. Ash? Certainly. The themes we'll be exploring are scientific curiosity versus leaving well alone. <laughs> That's something your mum would say. Leave well alone. Leave well alone, Stuart. Leave well alone. Stuart, stop poking that kill man with that stick. Come inside and have your tea. That Never. sounds like um, the British countryside in general. Leave well alone. Don't need to be moving forward. Integrate with other people. No, 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 no. Go into space. No, I don't think so. Get off my land before I shoot your dog. <laughs> we didn't even address the dog dying in the second one. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah, that did happen. Poor old Chris the dog. <laughs> That's his real name. That's a yeah. Chris the dog. Chris the dog. Clint that film is officially on <laughs> Does, Does the, the dog, dog die? Die. Com. Hmm. Yeah. The other theme is The Terror of the Unknown. <laughs> Elevator pitch. 30 years after the encounter with the Gillman, a group of scientists attempt to follow up on the discovery, but encounter more than they could have ever imagined. Ooh, I was waiting for you to say more. Gilmen. <laughs> is that the plural? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just hundreds of the fuckers everywhere. <laughs> Can't get the boat down the river because it's stuffed with Gilmen. Common as algae in the old Amazon with the Gilmen's. I'm just going to give the Gilman a tracheotomy and he's just going to go, fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> just continuously. Pretty much. Um, Billy out, the out sweary Gilman. Out of his little, <laughs> little tracky hole. And actually, it'd be amazing if he had to have one of those, you know those things that you, if you've had a tracheotomy. Yeah, <laughs> man, <laughs> man. <laughs> it, would, it would literally be, it's like, quickly now, let's hear a speech. Heil Hitler. It's off he raises one webbed hand. <laughs> That's what he was trying to do all through the first two. He's not hugging you. He had frozen shoulders. <laughs> Mein Führer. <laughs> of course, he wouldn't oh. actually have a voice box. He'd have a little XRJ. <laughs> yeah. Peter Frampton would have to plug his talk box into. Interesting little side note, actually. That wouldn't be entirely un... Uh, what? Inter- no, no, I'm just, just, just bear with me. I actually wrote an essay at uni about um, the fact that the Universal uh, films from that period were co-opted into what... No, no, Nazi seriously. propaganda. Yeah, yeah, no, they were co-opted into... So, like, the Invisible Man sequel is called The Invisible Agent, and he basically yeah. b- stops being a bad guy and ends up fighting for the Allies and is, like, sneaks around Nazi bases invisible and Fucking kills people. Hell. So I, I would love to see... So like, did Gilman. The, yeah, I was going to say, the Gilman, like... You can imagine him like I don't well, know. It's it's more it's more boys from Brazil than Gilman. <laughs> like a like a, a Hitler clone gone wrong. Oh, that would be Gordon Abend. <laughs> <laughs> Good afternoon, Herr Gilman. <laughs> if that's not the fucking subtitle. <laughs> Oh God, we need to make that happen. Good enough. <laughs> <laughs> they've had to just paint a little moustache on because he can't grow one. So is the bomb. <laughs> ich habe the bomb in the ocean. <laughs> in das Wasser. <laughs> Why have you fused her Hitler with the fish? I was very bored. <laughs> I had a lot of time. Back on track. Is it too late to rewrite is, uh, our pitch? Is, anyway. is her Gilman going to be the one that opens the Ark of the Covenant? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bill it back to God, Mr. Jones. <laughs> Dr. Jones. <laughs> you want to see what's in here as much as I do. This fish belongs in a museum. <laughs> in an aquarium. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we had it in one, but it was really shallow. Oh, my just God. Jumped out. Chains. <laughs> Chains. Sorry, guys. He can't make a 10-foot jump, right? Oh, God, he can! 
And we thought did. of nothing. We thought we thought of everything. <laughs> we had top men on it. Top men. Top Clint, men. Clint, Clint, put that rat down. <laughs> so over to Finn Man, the other creature. Hello. Hey. I'll give you the the title and the synopsis, or more accurately, the elevator pitch, and then I will defer to uh, my fellow Finman, uh, Tom Martin, who can give you the full details. Are you the Finn men? Yeah, oh, we yeah. are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're the other creatures. Um, right, okay, so our title is Return to the Black Lagoon in 3D. <laughs> with, 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 uh, we've lost already. You've we, should, us. No, we, should, we should say also that there is an exclamation mark at the end of that title. There is, there is. Ours is actually in 4D. So. Oh, oh, right. Well, it's set in the 80s, so travel through. The 80s, smell-o-vision. Um, the elevator pitch is as follows. <clears throat> Using the information in Dr. Reed's journal, ichthyologist Christopher Thorne and his colleagues travel back to the Amazon to continue the research into the missing link. But what awaits them in the jungle is worse than they could possibly conceive. <laughs> and if it's not the same fucking film, <laughs> same title. What same year one. is your set? Well, uh, I have to tumble. Yeah. Uh, so our, uh, our <laughs> film uh, is released and set, indeed, in 1955, which oh. is... One year after Creature from the Black Lagoon. For our director, uh, and all of these like listeners, you're just going to go, who? Because these yeah. are all yeah. universal 1950s kind of crew and cast, etc. But bear yeah. with us. Uh, is Arthur Lubin, who directed Phantom of the Opera and then went on to direct Lady Godiva of Coventry, that classic. Which uh, starred, or featured, Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood. And um, uh, Lubin was the guy who um, got Eastwood into Universal in the first place. Yeah. Ah, yes. So that was yeah, the yeah. little connection yeah. there. Our returning cast is Ben Chapman and Riku Browning, who play the creature, both in and On out land of water. and in water, yep, yep. yep. Uh, so basically, our new cast, uh, all of these people were in various sort of uh, universal films throughout the 1950s. So we've got Stephen McNally, who plays Robert Drake. We've got Richard Green, who plays Christopher Thorne. We have Sally Forrest, who plays Diane Breen. We have Rita Corday, who plays Susan Lyle. We have Charles Lawton, who plays Mr. Barker. And we have... Clint Eastwood, who plays Joe. Yeah, <laughs> name. Um, so for the director of photography, uh, so I did a little bit of research on this because that's kind of my thing is filmmake- in filmmaking is cinematography and DOP. We've gone for Robert Burks. Now, Robert Burks was uh, infamous for working a lot with Alfred Hitchcock. Mm, and right. basically he shot most of Hitchcock's films. Um, but the reason we've gone for him on this is that he actually shot Dial M for Murder, which is Alfred Hitchcock's one foray into the world of 3D, which was not released widely in 3D uh, because basically Hitchcock kind of came to the format so late that by the time he released the film, there wasn't many 3D theatres around. But it's widely regarded as a very good example of kind of 1950s 3D. And obviously we wanted to make sure that uh, the, the 3D in this film was, was pretty good and, and actually worked really nicely. And also, he's a really good DOP anyway and makes stuff look nice, whether it's in 2D or 3D. Uh, and he was kind of quite a technical guy. He also pioneered a lot of the early colour stuff as well. So he's got kind of a foot in the camp of old black and white lighting, working with early colour stock film stocks and also 3D. So we thought he'd be a really good guy to kind of... All-rounder. Make, yeah, a good all-rounder from, from the period. This is a good... Uh, this is sort of harkens back to the point Matt was making earlier about um, sort of how we've kind of fudged things, however, is that he was technically, I believe, a Warner Brothers guy. Um, so technically it's a bit you of... You wrangle him over to the other studio kind of thing. It was, yeah. It's a bit of a kind of... We think it's a Godfather fudge. sort of thing. Someone puts a gun to their head and says, we're taking him. <laughs> yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's, Puts it's, a gill man to his head. <laughs> it's, a little, it's a little bit of a fudge 
much, but we really wanted to get him in there because we think it, we, he would make the thing look really good, uh, which obviously the original real sequel is sorely lacking because it looks like a hot pile of dog shit. So, um, <laughs> in our, black and white. In black and white. Um, our composer would be uh, Henry Man- Mancini. Uh, who did The Creature from the Black Lagoon and then went on to do Touch of Evil, Breakfast Tiffany's and Pink Panther. And we should also add... I'm pretty sure he was uncredited in all the the, um, universal stuff he did because, again, at that day... Even if if you look at the music for the original Creature... I think there are three people who work on it and they're all uncredited just because of how it was treated back then. Yeah. And I should also add at this point, which I've forgotten to add, uh, I'm fairly confident we discussed also that our th- this would be a colour 3D film. Oh, as well. oh really? So, yeah, right, so this right. would be quite a high budget thing in that we, it, it was because it ended, was towards the end of that 3D period, there was a few colour 3D films came out and we are fairly confident that they could have made it if they had enough of a budget in colour 3D. Yeah, to for make us, it. this is the last big hurrah of the Universal Monster films, without them knowing it, but from obviously <laughs> retrospective hindsight that we have now. Um, but it's like, last big hurrah of 3D, last big hurrah of um, Universal Monsters, slap some colour in there and go, boom, here's everything, it's our last one. Colour and 3D, and yeah. So yeah. That, that's kind of, again, normally we wouldn't go quite so far into the technical stuff, but obviously, it's, as it's our important. title kind of suggests, it's important to our pitch. So there we are. Mm. Excellent stuff, gentlemen. Lots of pointing at things. Lots of pointing. Yeah, lots towards, of the towards the audience. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody has spears. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. They've guessed our plot. Yeah. Um, well, they said spears rather than erections, so uh, I guess yeah. it's... I mean, <laughs> it was implied. <laughs> Back over to you, the plowman, the ashen, the Clint Eastwood's missing rat. <laughs> I'm not over that team name. It's insane and ridiculous. We open on an aeroplane flying from London to Brazil. Two passengers, a Professor Prenderville from the British Directorate of Fisheries Research and his new American assistant, Greta, discuss the reason for their travel. Prenderville is an expert in unusual marine biology and is trying to find a long-estranged associate of his, Dr David Reed. Reed, he says, was on the cusp of one of the most significant marine biology discoveries in history, something that might change the way we think about marine life, but has been uncontactable for many years. Prenderville has a lead that says Reed was at one point working out of a marine biology institute near Macapá in northern Brazil, and they are going to investigate. Prenderville and Greta are greeted at the airport by Dr Medina, who runs the facility. En route, Medina tells Prenderville that the facility was effectively abandoned in the mid-1970s, the last time that anyone heard of Dr Reed and his work. Mendina took over the running of the facility when Dr. Meyer, who previously ran it, retired. However, he said the facility is effectively a shell these days, that most of the equipment, notes and research are gone, and that he's effectively a glorified caretaker. They arrive at the building to find it gutted and rotting. Prenderville is angered that they have wasted their time and that the trail has gone cold, but, looking through an old office that once belonged to Reed, Greta discovers a hidden safe. They manage to jimmy open the rotted door and are amazed to find the fossilised arm of the gill man in a glass case, as well as journals of the events of the first film. Additions mention that following the events of the original creature from the Black Lagoon, Dr Reed and Julie Adams got married and returned to Brazil to continue the work of Dr Meyer, who led the original expedition. They hoped to find and study another creature like the one that was killed in the first film, but never did. The last entry in the notebook, dated to the mid-1970s, says that Dr. Reed and Kay are moving to a research outpost near the site of the Black Lagoon, having made an important discovery. Prenderville suggests that they go on an expedition to find the research outpost. Medina attempts to charter a boat to take them down the Amazon, but most local sailors refuse, spooked by stories of the creature. Finally, they find Captain Campbell and his crew of two. Campbell tells them that he doesn't scare easy and is willing to take them, but the trip will cost them. 
Campbell fires up his boat to the Endeavour, and they head off in the direction of the Black Lagoon. On the journey, Prenderville, Greta and Medina speculate about the possibilities of Reed's discovery, but are dismissed by Campbell, who thinks the creature is just an old folk legend. The boat is moored for the night, and Campbell's crewmates sit on the deck, drinking and telling stories. Suddenly, one of them is violently pulled off the boat and into the water, his head smacking against the deck and leaving a pool of blood. Hearing the noise, the other runs over and begins to shout for the others when he, too, is pulled underwater. The rest of the crew emerge quickly from below decks with guns in hand, but the creature evades them. However, Campbell manages to cross its path. He gets a couple of shots off. The creature is apparently wounded and slinks back into the water. As dawn breaks, the crew, clearly shaken by the last night's horrors, are preparing to leave. But they discover that the creature released the mooring, and they have drifted and are now unsure of their location. Campbell attempts to work out their position on a map, whilst the now very rile Prenderville says to Medina, don't you Brazilians know your own damn country? Medina responds that he's Puerto Rican, and the only Brazilians on board were Campbell's now very dead crew. They continue up the river towards where Campbell believes the nearest settlement is. Prenderville is becoming increasingly unstable, occasionally firing shots into the rainforest at anything that moves. Every remaining crew member is carrying a gun and on permanent guard duty. They drift past an old wooden structure, which Greta believes to be the outpost described in the journal. They pull up to it and are shocked to discover that someone is still living there. An old Brazilian lady says that she was an assistant for the Reeds. She states that Kay became ill soon after they arrived at the outpost with a strange condition that defied diagnosis. It appeared to be some kind of infection. She also went insane, becoming obsessed with something in the water. Distraught by her deterioration, Dr. Reed killed himself, and then one day, Kay was gone. Greta asks the old lady how she died, and she responds in Portuguese. Nobody understands except Medina, who looks troubled. He explains that she said Dr. K didn't die, she just went into the water. The crew have to stay overnight as it is too dangerous to sail the boat in the dark. Greta dreams of an older K. Reed calling to her before extending a webbed hand and pulling her underwater. She wakes up in a cold sweat. Unable to return to sleep, she walks near the boat to discover Prenderville is also awake. He is obsessively rereading the journal they found in Maya's safe. Unhinged and barely coherent, he tells Greta that the creature hunted for human women, and that's why it was so obsessed with Dr. K. It's following them now, he reasons, because it wants Greta. And if he brings her to the creature, the creature will likely let the rest of them live. He then launches himself at Greta. Greta fights fiercely against him but is overpowered and knocked unconscious. Medina hears the commotion and confronts Prenderville. In his now crazy state, Prenderville severely beats Medina, apparently to death. From obsessing over Dr. Ree's journal, Prenderville believes he has found the location of the Black Lagoon and sets off with Greta. Campbell wakes to discover Prenderville and Greta are gone. He also finds a barely alive Medina, who tells him about Prenderville's delusions and him taking Greta to the Black Lagoon before he dies. The old woman then tells Campbell that she knows the location of the lagoon, but warns him not to go, saying it is already too late for Prenderville and Greta, and that he should escape now while he still can. Campbell does not heed her warning, and sets off to the location. Inside the Black Lagoon, a rambling Prenderville makes a lot of noise, standing next to the still unconscious Greta. I know you're in here, you bastard. I've got what you want. Slowly the creature emerges in full view for the first time in the film. While it's discernibly the same species as the original creature, it's a much more ferocious-looking monster, a full-on 1980s Lovecraftian nightmare. It comes face-to-face with Prenderville, quickly glancing at Greta before staring him down. 
So, do we have a deal? A clearly nervous Prendival asks. The creature hesitates for a moment before tearing him limb from limb. No deal, it would seem. The creature then picks up Greta as well as Dr. Reed's journal and takes her deeper into the lagoon. Greta awakes in a cave near to the creature. She initially panics but realises that the creature has seen her and is not advancing to attack. Instead, it appears to be looking at Dr. Reed's journal. The creature walks over to her, holding a torn-out photograph of David and Kay Reed. It points at Kay Reed and then points at itself. Greta then realises the horrible truth. Kay has become the creature. The creature's demeanour then turns. It unexpectedly grabs Greta, jumping into a pool of water and dragging her downwards. Greta struggles but stops when she is confronted with a blinding light. She finds herself face to face with what appears to be a gateway marked with runes and stones. The light appears to be emanating from the gateway and she can just about make out a gigantic strange figure. A strange and human voice fills her mind. She doesn't understand it at first, but eventually realises that the voice is repeating. As one is released, one must serve. Overwhelmed by the experience and running out of oxygen, Greta blacks out again. She wakes up back in the cave. The creature stands before her, but its features are changing. Still monstrous, but increasingly human. Campbell then runs in, having found the entrance. Before Greta has time to explain what is going on, he fires off a full clip of ammunition into the off-guard creature, killing it. It hits the floor and Campbell runs over to find himself face to face with the distorted body of a nearly 60-year-old Kay Reed. On a flight back from Brazil, Greta finishes recounting the story to Campbell, how Kay must have been infected with a virus that turned her into the creature. She also talks about her strange experience in the water, the blinding light, the gateway, and how she couldn't really explain it. Campbell says it was probably an hallucination due to lack of oxygen. The many people have almost drowned talk of a near-religious out-of-body experience. Greta returns home, exhausted. All she wants to do is sleep. But as she changes into her nightclothes, she is confronted with something bizarre. Taking off her shoes and socks, she discovers that a small amount of webbing has appeared between two of her toes, as well as a couple of patches of green scales. At this moment, she remembers the words she heard in the cave. As one is released, one must serve. As we cut to black, the sound of her screaming is heard. Eerie. Uh, you're going to have a tough time, Jack. You're going to have a very tough time. Okay. Let's not say any more than that. And then it goes, the end. Just like the others. So the theory behind that was um, Landis and Carpenter were both attached to remakes of the uh, Creature from the Black Lacoon at one point. In the 80s, John Landis was going to do a version based on a script by Nigel Neal from the Quatermass experiment, Mm -hmm. I believe. Really? Um, And then Carpenter was going to do it again in the 90s. So I just moved him back in time a bit. (laughs) With the power of the sequelizers. Over to the Fin Men, a.k.a. the other creatures. Mm, That's us. Time for your pitch, gentlemen. Okay, so, return to the Black Lagoon in 3D. We should highlight, before we start, that this is a very 50s pitch. It was really, much like doing the Aladdin one, it's a really different thing to try and write. Yeah, so when I joked at the end of last week's episode, oh, it's going to be a little bit 1950s and maybe a little bit more racist than you'd be expected. That's Tom's words, not mine. No, but, the, but, but, it is, but it is the, point, the point being is that there are, points, there are points in it that are quite questionable treatment of various individuals. Yeah. We, we couldn't have... Say, for example, how do you resolve a problem in the 40s? You slap a dame, a problem solved. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah, but we don't do that now. Jack's obviously, looking but... increasingly uncomfortable here. Well, yeah. well, so we're basically... Buckle up, motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah, so that's it. 
We open in California in the mid-1950s. We are introduced to British ichthyologist Christopher Thorne as he consults with a nurse in the Roovluft Asylum. The uh, nurse explains that there is little they can do for Thorne's old companion, Dr. David Reed. Back in Thorne's workshop at the Museum of Biological Species, he speaks with his assistant, Diane Breen, and the two exposit about Reed's expedition to South America and how everyone involved ended up either dead or in an asylum. Using Reed's notebook, Diane impresses that no matter how disturbed and incoherent the findings became, the initial findings are too important not to follow up. Thorne is hesitant, but he says he will think on the matter. That night, Thorne has a nightmare, which is mostly a series of terrible noises as a camera slowly pushes in on a deep jungle thicket before a scaly foot steps out and Thorne wakes up abruptly. Walking to a dresser, he pours himself a brandy and downs it before staring at a globe pensively. That's appropriately 50s. It's very 50s. The next day, Thorne meets with the museum curator, Mr Barker. Being contractually obliged to Barker, the curator is unwilling to let Thorne travel on such a dangerous and lengthy expedition unless Barker is allowed to accompany him. Thorne tries to talk the out-of-shape older man out of it, but Barker explains that he has always sat behind a desk and has a thirst for adventure, which has never been sated, and this could be his last chance to do so. Seeing that he doesn't have a choice in the matter, Thorne agrees. Mr Barker, Thorne and Diane arrive in Brazil, commenting on the immense heat, the beautiful vistas, and that the journey was a surprisingly pleasant one. They then travel by donkey to meet with Mr Barker's contact, an American hunter by the name of Robert Drake. As per instruction, Drake has assembled a crew comprised of several locals and two surly Americans, Susan and Joe. After introductions have been made, the scientists announced to Drake the exact details of their expedition, which were apparently too risky to transmit via telegram. Joe protests, saying he signed up on a trap an animal not to dig up fossils or chase down some hokey legend. Diane pleads that it's all true, and Drake, overcome with feelings of attraction for the educated lady, agrees, but only because he doesn't want to see... Much like the gill man himself. Yeah. 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 Man, are we so different. Agrees, but only because he doesn't want to see these tourists get themselves killed. Picking up on the sexual tension, Susan treats the new arrivals with increased disdain. As you can see, audience, so far, so 1950s. Mm. A lady, another lady, oof. Troubles. Yep. Um, <laughs> Too many bloody ladies. Yep. Aboard Drake's boat, the group discusses the nature of evolution, that this creature is probably a missing link between man and beast. The partly scientific, partly theological discourse is interrupted when one of the locals bursts into the cabin, screaming wildly. He's finally subdued, and Drake explains that the locals don't want to sail anywhere near the fabled Black Lagoon. Upon asking why, he translates that no one returns, and the entire jungle vicinity is controlled by the Minagapi. Thorne and Diane seem confused as this tribe were not mentioned in Reed's notes. Joe teases the scientists by saying they are likely cannibals and a lot of these tribes have been continuing barbaric practices for centuries. 1950s, 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 carry on. Diane corrects Joe, explaining that barbarism is just a perception and that Europeans were centuries behind other cultures many years ago. Drake is impressed with Diane's tenacity and resolve and tells the hysterical local that they will hold their course, otherwise they'll have him to contend with. Drake is impressed with Diane's tenacity and resolve and tells the historical local that they will hold their course or they'll have him to contend with. A day or two later, the ship moors and the crew depart to set off into the jungle. Unwilling to go deeper into the jungle, the locals stay with the boat and Drake goes them for their cowardice. Taken in by the wonder of the environment, Mr. Barker stumbles off, but comes across an encampment of violently dancing natives. 1950s. He quietly signals to the rest of the group who approach. Susan assumes this must be the Minagape, and says it explains all the various tracks she's seen around the area. Several men dressed in scaly skin hides bring two women to the water's edge and tie them to respective poles. Barker, fascinated, explained they must be priests offering the girls to a deity as a sacrifice. 
Joe and Susan are outraged, but Drake highlights how outnumbered they are, and they wouldn't make it out alive. Despite Mr Barker's new obsession, the group agreed to head back to the boat in an attempt to head down river and avoid the tribal cult altogether. Returning to the boat, the explorers are horrified to find it stripped and the crew torn to pieces. Joe damns the savages for their actions, but Susan notes that no man could perform such an act. Drake, agreeing with Thorne, states they need to head back to civilization on foot. He orders the survivors to take the necessary provisions and details the route they will take. Quietly, Drake asks questions he admits he should have asked before taking the job, specifically what happened to the previous expedition. Thorne somberly relays, to which Drake responds, Just my luck. That night, Thorne is haunted by the same dream and wakes. Leaving his tent, he sees Drake stumbling around in a similar fashion. They state how they've had the same dream and muse on the oddity of the coincidence. Then they realise Susan and Diane are no longer with the group. Back at the Menegarpe camp, Diane and Susan rouse from unconsciousness and shriek at the terrifying priests staring down on them. They are largely bound and being carried toward the offertory poles seen earlier. Their protests are quelled as the holy man breathes a smoke over them, which makes them placid. Lilting, the women blearily watch as the ceremony takes place, and several creatures rise from the murky depths and take the women down into the water. Can I add at this point that offertory poles is one of my absolute favourite Matt Stogdenisms from this season? <laughs> <laughs> if, uh, if you listen back, listeners, it's in every episode. Yeah, you just, you just don't know it. <laughs> Shortly after, a hail of gunfire rips through the Minigarpi, slaughtering the whooping and cheering natives. But 1950s, 1950s, 1950s. Several arrows and spears are dodged as Joe, Drake, Thorne and Mr Barker come to the rescue. The village, less populated than before, is neatly overrun by the adventurers and they quickly investigate the area, but cannot find Susan and Diane. Barker produces skins with writing on which talk of old gods and that the creatures are drones, offspring of the sacrifices and some elder beast. Disgusted and horrified as as to their colleagues' potential fate, the men search the area. Drake quickly tracks strange animalistic footprints into the water and leaving their belongings, the group submerge themselves and swim unarmed into the depths. In the water, the men follow a distant light before emerging in a terrifying cave with strange, almost alien geological properties. Thorne turns around and questions Mr Barker's whereabouts. We are then treated to a chilling experience as Barker is clearly lost in the water and beset upon by a creature who tears him limb from limb. Back in the cave, Drake hypothesises that he might not have been able to hold his breath long enough and drowned. To consolidate Thorne, he says it was probably the best way to go, considering what they're facing. At that moment, the group hear the growling of some monstrous beast and women's screams. Heading through the tunnel, they locate a cavernous opening with a dark crevice, out of which giant tentacles are pulling in one of the Menagape women seen earlier. Stumbling backwards at the grotesque sight, Joe feels the floor give way and he falls down a crack and into a birthing room full of crying gill babies. That's right, gill babies. A birthing room of gill babies. Yep. I'm, I'm not going to say 1950 because that's not really 1950s. No. <laughs> Flailing and overwhelmed, he knocks a fiery torch on the floor and the whole room goes up in flames. Drake and Thorne watch as the bone-chilling sound causes the tentacle creature to retreat and the drone creatures to disperse. Seeing the opportunity, they head down to the open space and free the panicking Susan and Diane. As they do this, several tentacles shoot out from the crevice and drag the four individuals closer inside. Thorne, getting a look at what the audience can't see, lets out a blood-curdling scream. Finally freed from her restraints, Susan reaches for the knife in her boot and cuts at the tentacles, sending the beast reeling. Drake takes the knife from Susan and the group run back to the pool they arrived in. Behind them, long shadows of creatures are cast on the walls. After a frantic swim to the surface, the group are shocked to see the rest of the Menegape staring down at them, silent and stationary. Behind them, the water surface bubbles as several creatures calmly emerge. Realising their fate is sealed and they will meet a terrible demise, Drake slowly reaches for his satchel, still on the shore from earlier. Quietly, he tells the others to run while they have the chance. 
Diane protests, but Drake tells her to stay quiet. Holding a stick of dynamite aloft, Drake lights the fuse and tells the others to run. Thorn, Diane and Susan do so as the creature's natives set on Drake and his strange sparkling flare. As the three survivors escape, an explosion is heard in the distance, but this is quickly followed by drums in the darkness. We cross-dissolve to the following morning, and the survivors eventually made their way to a small town, as per Drake's previously mentioned route. A local boy brings the babbling foreigners to a doctor, but the man says in Portuguese that they are suffering from a mental malady, that they are on the verge of insanity and barely able to communicate. He adds that there is nothing that can be done for them, and arranges for the three poor souls to be transferred to an asylum back in the United States. As the Doctor hangs up the phone, we cross-dissolve one last time to the same jungle floor seen in the dream sequences as several creatures slowly step out of the thicket and toward the camera before the credits roll. Mm. Excellent pitches, both of you. Very different and kind of... And the same. Clearly very 50s and very 80s. But yeah, kind of similar in a lot of ways. Lovecraft. I'll start off with, yeah, basically (laughs) that kind of thing. I'll pitch it to the Finn men first. A simple question of why the Lovecraft... Because Where is the love? <laughs> in both of your pigeons. Yeah, um, I told you we should have had Fergie as the creature. Yeah. <laughs> we sorry, Phaser is the creature, the <laughs> unknown third member of the. Will I am leads an intrepid crew into the heart of Brazil to find him. And I can imagine Gilman. the amount of gadgets he would have that would just be shit gadgets that wouldn't help. <laughs> like, I, hey, I've got this thing that's—it's a magnifying glass that straps to the back of my phone and turns the iPhone camera into a really useless magnifying glass. I call it magnifying glass i am <laughs> anyway when we were discussing sort of in our sequelizers meeting for a series two this one it was as we alluded to earlier it was really tricky because it required such a a kind of different approach to deal with the kind of 1955-ness of it all and we just kind of thought about well also what what would be an escalation from what would be a plausible backstory that would be interesting what would be an escalation something that would be truly horrific the answer was tentacle porn yeah the answer was tentacles (laughs) um no and and that's kind of where we got to really wasn't it yeah it's it's um it's interesting because much in the same way we we did Jaws way back in season one, um, it never occurred to us to set it any time other than shortly afterwards. And, and you guys right, did a great right. job with it. And the same thing with this one; it would never occur to us to take it outside of the fifties because um, it is such a product of, as we were talking about in the so what's wrong and what's right with it. It's such a product of the nineteen fifties. Yeah, exactly. But then again, the eighties did revive a lot of this stuff anyway, and yeah. that's why I think you guys have made a really well, good. Well, the second Monster Squad is a perfect example. Exactly. Also, yeah, yeah. in the nineteen eighties, being the sort of second three D revival. Um, around that time um, I think I'm right in saying that isn't it it's the 1980s it's 50s yeah, 80s yeah, and then 80s, the 2000s yeah. um, every 30 years basically. every 30 yeah. years it's a bit like uh, it's a like generational it. gap thing people <laughs> saying oh this is a good idea when I was a kid it's like no it wasn't it was never a good idea um, um, but no we, we, we um, went with the Lovecraft angle because effectively it was out there people had access to it but didn't really know much about Lovecraft so you could steal from it quite Right, right. Yeah, really. problem. Yeah. yeah, in the same way that, let's face it, almost everything from the Universal Monster stuff is effectively just stolen or, you know, taken from rights of books and various other literature and stuff. It's, it's, there's very few original properties mm. in the Universal mm. Monster stuff, which is fair enough. So we thought, well, Gilman's one of the very, of well, the creature from Black Lagoon, I should say, it's one of those rare things that is actually kind of an original property. There's no real source for it. So we thought, well, let's give it something to make it more meaningful, to escalate it somewhat, to, again, not being a 50s audience, do the exact same thing again, rather than just being, oh, now there are two Gilmen. We thought, no, no, let's let's make it, you know, it's something much more seedy, a bit, bit more King Kong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bit, bit more King Kong. And, and, and a lot more horrifying scary. as well, the idea yeah. that these are just giving, in giving a backstory, these are just 
sort of drones of and and, and we've deli- birthed out of these yeah. ladies and we've deliberately Ugh. kind of we've deliberately kind of obs- sort of obscured the exact mechanics of how it works and left that to the audience's imagination because obviously tentacle porn yeah mm. we couldn't really, really put it in the 1950s because you wouldn't you'd be able to show that kind of thing in the 50s that sort of obvious horror so we've kind of left it yeah. to the imagination and kind of made it a little bit more psychological in that regard and hopefully all Which the more terrifying plays into the lovecrafting thing anyway yeah yeah the idea of what what you're screaming at is more terrifying and and there's also the um 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea did an amazing squid in that film. And it, at the time, it's more than possible to do that kind of effect. Squidly diddlies. Squidly diddlies. Yeah, so the, and Lovecraft just is a really nice fit uh, and gives it a real weight and a horrible sense of racist undertones. Thanks, Lovecraft. Great stories, but also you're a wanker. I did uh, one thing that I'll pick up on that you said there. I did wonder with some of yours if it was a little too intense for a 50s movie. Specifically, mm-hmm. the bit that struck me was the bit with the guy in the dynamite because I'm pretty sure that based on the code mm-hmm. at the time, yeah. you cannot oh, show somebody doing a suicide. I see. You wouldn't see it. Show him. You would see him holding it as a threat, as if to look at, and then he gets set upon by them. So it's not a suicide; it's merely a heroic. But I do wonder if that would still come up because it's right. I think you got away with the horror in in war films as well. So I think you'd be okay with that. The whole running with a grenade, sort of save the boys kind of thing. But I know you'd probably have an issue with it, and we'd all be called communists. Save the boys, kill the gill babies. Yeah, yeah. But I, know, no, I, know I, saying, I totally though. take your point, Alec, because it is. I mean, I remember studying that at uni, and they are viciously strict on what you can. I mean, and can't they're, show they're less right. strict by the the fifties, and they are certainly in the when it's established in the in the thirties and forties, and it's starting to lax a bit then. But I did some of just a couple of those details. I thought, are you going to have a problem with that? At yeah, the time? I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, deny that. But I think yeah. at the same time, you'd still then have this, you know, um, cult X unrated version mm. of the film. And then the watered yeah. down version get released. Yeah, yeah, that's but the film would true. still stand as it's it is. Also, I mean, it's really, it's a really weird thing because that's something we've never come across. Because mm-hmm. every other film we've done has we just been do after 1967, yeah. when you can do whatever and they'll slap a rating on it. But here it is <clears throat> plausible that scrutiny. your film won't get mm-hmm. released yeah. because right, every right. film has to be viewable by everyone in American culture at the time. And the the Lovecraftian ties for you guys, Clint Eastwood Carpenter. and his missing rat. Old John Comes does love himself a bit. He of does a bit, doesn't he? Had in the mouth of madness. He did later. Yeah, yeah and, love the film. Uh, Prince of Darkness. Oh, and even even the things got plenty of. Oh, clear. Kind yeah. Of, yeah, I think I think as soon as Carpenter came in, you said. That really, I assumed as much. That was, yeah. that was, yeah, yeah. Plus, Lovecraft is on the rise a bit in popular culture at the time from well, the late seventies and the RPGs that were re- bringing it in. Reanimator comes out not long after this as well, so I think you're you're in the midst of um, a growing cultural consciousness towards yeah. his stuff. It's getting mentioned a lot in music at the time as well, in like metal music and stuff. So I think. People are more aware of. Think of Metallica again. Aren't you? Of, yeah, I'm absolutely thinking. I'm always thinking Metallica. <laughs> so am I, but, um, if in doubt. What do you think about Alec? Delica. <laughs> Fremta. She would call a Cthulhu was in your soundtrack somewhere. Old Scott. Yeah, like synth version played yeah. by John Carpenter. Carpenter. Wow. <laughs> that would be so good. Now that you've said that, I'm just like, that shit sounds awesome. Listeners out there. Make it. Happen. Monster <laughs> City need intro music, and John Carpenter's Metallica Call of Cthulhu would certainly be that. But yeah, I think there is a big, as Stuart said, there's, there's sort of a big Lovecraft interest in the mm. 80s, and I think we kind of capitalized on that, I guess. Back to the film, and something Alec kind of touched upon a little bit. It felt very, very 50s, as you kept saying, 1950s, 1950s. Correct. It felt like it went a bit more modern just because you both have modern sensibilities towards the end with the tentacles and things like that and and the gill babies it felt 
almost more 80s, weirdly enough, considering yeah. theirs is an 80s film. I, yeah, that's the kind that. of vibe I got. I imagined kind of almost the, uh, the alien style, like room full of eggs kind of thing and the creepy babies. Oh, it babies wasn't and... that as such. No, it's more like a mummy's tomb kind of thing. I okay. Think, yeah, okay. when we say alien geological... I, Im- I imagine it very like wet and gross and like yeah, a thin also... layer of like fog everywhere and that kind of thing. Again, all I'm seeing is a 30s film now. <laughs> Arguably, I'll give you that when you can argue that's because... If it, as imitating you, as you've, yeah, I was gonna say, as you've, I'm, you've, I'm looking at it through a modern eye yeah I was going well. say you're yeah. looking at it through a modern eye obviously one of the things we really would want is like uh, with the tentacles you know that to be very kind of you know I can just imagine it being very dark and actually just mainly being the shadows of the tentacles flapping around on the walls yeah. and, and kind of um, I guess you think about the, the tentacle there's a tentacle monster in Forbidden Planet isn't yeah. there yes. the, yeah, yeah. That, and yeah. it being more implicit and um, yeah rather than explicit at the same time I think um, the original because the thing about the this is the thing we're writing this thing in the 50s and think right okay let's let's put little jabs in here that we as contemporary uh you know millennial effectively people are going to say well let's fix this problem but not actually fix it because we can't literally say oh and then the women saved the day because the 50s would be like no hang on a broad saving the day we're not doing that (laughs) scrap it film on again your your women did have lines Ah, yeah exactly they weren't slapped around yeah i'm not sure it would pass the bechtel test but i guess that's the point (laughs) but at the same time i think this is why we put the little nods in because a really strange thing with regards to the first creature of the Black Lagoon is that it makes a really bold statement for America in the 50s. And it says in the opening scene about it basically takes science and religion and meshes them. You don't fucking do that in America in the 50s. You thought that's, yeah. It's like God's country kind of thing. You don't. When it opens with the footprints and stuff. That's a, yeah. It's such it, a great it, scene. It literally says evolution. Yeah. Like, fuck me. That's. I, I remember being shocked by that when I was watching the first one. I was like, Jesus Christ, they're going straight in with the. And fishes it, walked on the land yeah. and then yeah and I remember like being a child in the 80s and 90s and hearing there are schools in America who have to teach you know or won't teach evolution have mm. to teach um, creationism and stuff and I was like still, happens still do yeah. exactly so the idea of it in the 50s a mainstream film would say that yeah it's re- it's really quite forward thinking and in, in a very sort of subtle uh, you purposefully made it forward yeah. thinking so for the era so there are tiny kind of bits and pieces so for example you still have the actors being 50s characters but every now and again there will be a little nod to a our you know sequelizing audience saying see we'll be we hope there's a brighter future here so case in point the idea that the only reason that susan doesn't free herself is because she's got her hands tied and then finally she's like right fuck it knife hoof getting that tentacle out there and the first thing the guy does takes the knife off her nope <laughs> you can't say you came here unarmed you dickhead <laughs> but at the same time you lost two of yourselves uh, in the same way that it's played upon quite amusingly in um, Peter Jackson's King Kong, where they recreate the scenes from the film, the original King Kong, and you sort of see the behind-the-scene aspect of the very over-the-top acting. I don't like a woman on a ship, it's bad luck. And it's like, oh my god, this is embarrassing. Because <laughs> that's, again, how things are portrayed at the time. So, with regards to being very 50s and very, you know, adding contemporary elements, I would say, not to be incredibly rude, Jack, but if you haven't had a lot of the sort of 1930s, 40s, 50s, and so on influences films again when i'm just we we describe these scenes i am literally seeing a really well not in this case because it's the 50s but you know a shaky back lot on on the universal studios with smoke rolling in and and fake fucking trees and all sorts of things like that but in glorious color 3d color 3d (laughs) Um, but yeah it's because i i I wouldn't immediately go to something like alien or something from the 70s and things like that which is again 
I can completely see why we would go that way. I would go, oh, like Abbott and fucking Costello making a version of our film two years later and go, whoa, watch out for those gill babies. I got to feed this one. And it's like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> and that's, that's right, that audience. We've already thought about how it's going to be parodied. They are in the Universal yeah. Monster they are, yeah. universe as well. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Um, so, and then, you know, and then, and then Gilman comes and says, my kids, what are you doing with my kids? Um, <laughs> I like how he started off a Gilman in yeah, really yeah, Northern. Yeah. Yeah, where, the, where the fuck was he from by the end of hey, that? Grimsby. Gilman is a citizen of the world. Over to Clint Eastwood and his missing rat. Hello. I, I know I, I slightly changed that title every time, but I can't. Exactly. I, I know. My first question is, it felt shorter than your other pitches, and whether that was a conscious decision, if you have an idea of runtime, because like I said, the original is barely over 60 minutes long, as is the sequel. Was that a conscious kind of so, thing, or is it longer than like the pitch hints out? Because obviously, it would go into a lot more detail than what you guys described. John Carpenter movies in the eighties have mm. a really lean runtime. Mm. He rarely pushes. I've never really thought about it. He rarely pushes past the ninety minute mark. Interesting. And I think his kind of filmmaking is very much a and a lot of horror in the eighties. Horror and comedy fair. outside yeah. the welcome break. Yeah. So mm. I think. Right, right, right. I think yeah, it was keep it lean and mean and um, work with a director who does that very well. Because by the time John Carpenter stops doing that, his films yeah. stop being good. <laughs> so, Cue the late yeah. 90s. I wonder if there's a like direct correlation, like he hits the 93-minute mark and everything goes to shit yeah. or something like that. <laughs> yeah, this baby hits 93 minutes. You're going to see some serious <laughs> shit. You're going to see... Ghosts of Mars. Oh. <laughs> Get God, me Jason was him, wasn't it? Yeah, it yeah. was. Yeah. I was just forget. Um, it's, it's called John Carpenter's Ghosts yeah, of Mars. Um, I still Van. forget. One last question for Clint Eastwood's Missing Rat. Do you think there is an audience for it in the 80s? Do people care enough about Return of the Gill Man? Fuck yes. Is <laughs> <laughs> my answer to that. Okay, so the thing isn't a massive box office success, but it does do very well on mm. video. So there is a huge cult market for that. Um, I guess that which is a remake, as... which is a remake of a fifties film, yes, a fifties horror film. The Fly True. comes out in nineteen eighty seven and yeah, is a big yeah. hit, and True. that is a an update of a of a fifties horror film. I think Carpenter has enough of a following at this point that people will go see it because it's a John Carpenter movie. It's got that cult audience thing going on. But I also think, I mean, we talk Monster Squad happens, and yeah, I, Monster true. Squad is aimed at a very different audience, because it's a very <laughs> different sort of film. But ah, the Lovecraftian is, horror of But Monster you're Squad. also talking about these films that people were, were on endless repeat on American mm. television in the mm. 1950s, and I think you had kids that grew up watch uh, in the 1970s, sorry, and you had kids that grew up watching those movies. I think there is a huge audience for them, and I think there's a huge audience for what John Carpenter does. So yeah, I, I think, think the only difference is that yours is a very clear direct sequel, where the others are usually reboots or remakes. Mm. You're also dealing with a story that, again, for the aforementioned reasons, people are really familiar with. Yeah, arguably. I think it's um, and also one that doesn't require. I think the original creature story is so simple. Oh yeah, that it yeah. doesn't really require. We've also been very careful to cover it again through the journal that is mm. there so it, it, you yeah. get enough of a recap, a recap for people yeah. that haven't seen it <clears throat> yeah. to go okay this is what happened in the original it, one it feels like one of those films that people could probably watch and enjoy and then say yeah because it's a sequel and they say it's a sequel because it's it, you've covered a lot of the sort of plot angles, yeah. but by saying you don't need to necessarily know that Kay is in a previous film, which could be a thing of a you know a reveal during the film rather than especially as she appears in dream sequence. Yes, exactly beforehand. So we've already pre-established what she looks like as a character. Yeah. So yeah, also, I don't care. 
because we're just here to, you know, write a good film and not pander to a fictional <laughs> cinema audience. That's Stuart's a very good point. not bitter at all. As a as a embittered writer, it's like I don't care. I just want my ideas to make it to the silver screen. So I must render my decision, cast my judgment upon thee, and for this episode, episode six, I am going to choose Clint Eastwood and his missing Yay! rat. Congratulations, gents! You won. Uh, well done. It was a good half picture. of the Thank season. You. Well Thank done. You. Uh, as as always, I will say I thoroughly enjoyed. No, it's well, same, same I thoroughly yeah. enjoyed the the fin sharks pitch. I there's, thought it was. Uh, there's a lot of again, a lot of similarities with those two. I think they really was literally again how two decades would take pretty much the same pitch and yeah. hear it and say and I pitch it like this. It. And it's like yeah, I like that. I was looking forward to this week, and it has proved to be a really interesting one before that reason. I can't believe you both had the same title. Yes, bar the yeah. 3D yeah. and also really the similar. same, pretty much the same yeah. pitch. It's but, a similar yeah. kind of yeah, yeah. yeah. These are the closest to our two. Usually we been, are yeah. way poles yeah, apart, yeah. and this is the I think the closest, closest we've come. And even with the time difference, you got thirty, literally twenty nine mm. years apart. Yeah, yeah. You're still in similar sort of Lovecraftian territory. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's because the logical conclusion is that a this is how it should have been done, and b we kind of like each other, so we also like yeah. similar things. I think, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I think what we can conclude from this is that if four blocks in Norwich say it should have been done this way, then Hollywood <laughs> needs to take oh, it. Four um, white bearded blokes in Norwich. Yes, yeah, yeah. Luke. Care to tell us why you verdicted the way you yeah, verdicted why? it? I flipped the coin. Chambers? Flipped flipped the coin in my head. I really enjoyed the fact that you brought John Carpenter on. It's a totally logical thing. And, and you know, my, my question about audience and things like that. I know Stuart wasn't happy about that, but uh, <laughs> oh, no, Alec, I'm joking. Yeah. Alec defended it really well, and I think you made the excellent point that you've got the fly and stuff like that coming back. It makes total logical sense to bring back another one of the kind of classic 50s creatures, monsters, whatever you want to call them. I guess this is the creature by definition. And yeah, I, I think the 80s is a perfect setting for this kind of thing. I think that would certainly help the effects. John Carpenter's The Thing is like, still stands the test of time to this day and I think that would work really really well for something because as we said the suit in the second one and the third one are bollocks <laughs> and you have to shoot that suit in a very interesting yeah. way to make it look... I think the suit in the second is still good it's just badly shot. Oh yeah 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 it's the same suit I think It is I think yeah. yeah. I know we said it a lot this uh, this evening but um, Monster Squad the, the Gilman in Monster Squad is fucking scary it looks good It's a, and again that's Again, another 80s suit. That's an that's 80s, the, yeah, exactly. Yeah, without even the um, Carpenter instance. I also really like the fact that you kind of pass the mantle down kind of thing. Is it, is it a weird kind of, I don't know, metaphysical thing? Or is it a real disease? Or this kind of weird, is it is it godlike? Is it, is it Lovecraftian, Elder yeah. God magic kind of shit? Or is it some sort of disease you don't really know, I guess, and, until Kay starts transforming at the end. And bringing her back was a really nice choice. I think Tom and I were kind of making eyes at each other going forward. Like, yeah, we think we know what's going on here and kind of worked out the... But I think I still think it worked really well. And especially if audiences aren't familiar with that, I think it would still work because you said like the, the dream sequences and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, well done, gentlemen. Awesome. Thank you. Fine work. Since you won, Alec Plowman. Where can people find you on the internet? Sir Alec underscore Plowman on Twitter. 
you can go to my website, which is alecplowman.com. I'm also how up to date is Alec Plowman? Yeah, I was just uh, literally about to ask. Um, <laughs> it may be more up to date by the time this goes out because we yeah, went through true. quite the journey in season one. I, way. It's not it's not R.I.P. David Bowie anymore, which was on the front page <laughs> when the last season started. Uh, uh, relevant, but uh, yeah, but yeah. Uh, I'm also in a band with Jack called Monster City. You can go to monstercityband.com. Check out our heavy fucking metal. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you can. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, please, <laughs> it off. please do. And over to you, Mr. Stuart Ashen. Ashens, that'll find you all the stuff. A-S-H-E-N-S in your Google box. Or alternatively, your DuckDuckGo box. <laughs> <laughs> but never the Bing box. Never the Bing box. Never Bing. As a man who's never used Bing, over to you, Matthew Stogden. Thank you. Accurate. If you want to find me, type in S-T-O-G-H-Z, which spells Stogs, into Instagram or Twitter. You'll find all the stuff I do there. You can go to theredrighthand.co.uk to see my film reviews. And you can go to cheesement.com to see the films that we make. Mr. Thomas Martin, finish me off. I'm creative director of a video production agency called Forward. And I'm also a cinematographer. So you can find all the work and the films that we make for brands and businesses on the, our website, which is weareforward.uk. If you'd also like to follow us on social media, we post a load of behind the scenes and pictures of set on set stuff and all manner of stuff like that. So if you go to Instagram, Twitter and Facebook and type in Made by Forward, you'll find us there. And if you want to see... Uh, pictures of the shenanigans I get up to when I'm not even doing either of those three things you can go to Instagram and go to at TomMartin underscore 89 uh, and that's that's me on the internet really JLWC where can people find out about you <laughs> JLW Chambers funnily enough that's my initials plus my surname because I'm incredibly original like that of course you can follow the show at Sequelizers on Twitter and if you have any questions or comments for us in the longer format sequelizers at gmail.com is the place to send it to what's next week jack tell us in episode seven the penultimate of the season we're going to be sequelizing home alone three the family friendly penultimate episode of season two of sequelizers family friendly fuck off (laughs) are you ready for the Lovecraftian horror that is Home Alone 3. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Not far off the mark, man. <laughs> <laughs> More depressing than my Matrix. <laughs> Good God.